Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday the 16th of the 5th. Michael, how have you been since Friday? I've been fine, very fine, fine. That's all we can hope for in these troubled days, Michael. Oh, it's even more than we can hope for. Anyway. It's been a good week, Michael, I think, to remind people of... You know those things you wish for and then you get and you immediately have a moment of, oh, fuck, that's not what I wanted at all. If only I had known what would happen here. The DUP, I think, has uh, has delivered a wonderful lesson in that. Ah, yes, the DUP election that has been gripping interest all over the globe, I'm sure. Arlene Foster, so many people, so happy to see her go. I saw some quite, quite unpleasant comments about Arlene Foster. That must be some of that uh, endemic abuse of women on social media I hear so much about these days. Yes. Reminds me of that time when Margaret Thatcher was dead and many, many of the Be Kind people ensured that uh, Ding Dong, the witch is dead, got to number one in the charts. Yeah, but, you know, as was explained by a speaker recently at the Labour Party conference, of course, just because you're a woman doesn't mean that you're necessarily a woman. But then again, I think we all know that. These days, anybody's been paying attention knows that. So, Arlene Foster is gone. And many people were very, very happy because they wanted Arlene Foster gone. They said she was a regressive, horrible force in politics and that she had to be gone. Yep. Now, I don't know a lot about the North, which is why the show doesn't talk a lot about the North. Because honestly, there are a surprising amount of cultural and political differences up there. And it's very easy to just get things wrong. I do, however, know a couple of things about the DUP, because I've talked to members of the DUP, a fair amount of members of the DUP at various levels within it. And what I knew when people were calling for Arlene Foster to be removed is that Arlene Foster is very much on the moderate, reasonable, let's all come together and try and work this out side of the DUP. And there were some alternative options there, Michael, that perhaps were not going to show the grace that Arlene Foster did when she was willing to, you know, engage in polite conversation. The IRA did uh, shoot her father in the face. Arlene Foster, if I remember rightly, had was originally in what used to be called the Official Unionist Party or the Ulster Unionist Party. And she left them for the DUP along with Geoffrey Donaldson. So she's not what you'd call genetic DUP. I think Arlene was one of those people. I don't know. There's a very lovely essay written by, I think it was Jim Sheridan. Uh, he used to write for the Irish press a hundred years ago. And it talks about the fact that as, a, as a, a child and a young boy, people used to constantly say, would you take that look off your face? Which was a problem for him because it was just his face, you know? And some people have that un have a slightly unfortunate expression. And I think... No, that's not to say that Arlene didn't have her moments, but I think generally Arlene didn't come across immediately as one of those happy, cheery, good time girls. Um, her resting face had a quality of the, uh, shall we say, some of the more aggressive of the canine breeds to it. She had that rather doughty appearance. And I think that that coloured people's opinions, because let's face it, Nobody actually listens to anything the politicians say. They just look at them and come to a conclusion. So people, I think, constructed a certain image. She did things, to be fair to her, that other people had never done. As you say, she showed remarkable 
um, continence, emotional continence when she was dealing with those people. When she was eight, the IRA shot her father in the head. Yes. Uh, didn't kill him. He, he crawled back, covered in his own blood, back to the family home uh, where Arlene uh, saw him. And anyway, he survived the attempt. He was very, very severely wounded. And she has talked about this. Not a lot, but there are interviews out there if you want to find them down. And then she was willing to sit opposite people who, maybe not directly involved, but would definitely know who was involved, and some of whom may have participated in certain aspects of that. But it wasn't actually... Her father wasn't the only person in her fairly intimate circle to have been a target of violence. He was obviously the, the, the person most closest to her. There were other people uh, in her who were who were shot as well. I mean, she she had a she had a bad trouble, shall we say? She didn't. You see, her father was was a reserve police officer, so that was enough. So now she's gone, and uh, Edwin Poots is there. Yes, good old Poots. And I think people people actually sorry the people who know what this means. We're never happy to see Foster go anyway because they knew this was probably coming or something along these lines. Poots is a very different beast to Foster. Yeah, Poots is very much old-style genetic DUP. His father, he was Charlie Poots, uh, was a DUP politician. He had been part of the Protestant Unionist Party back in the six in the elections. Excuse me, in '69, he is in the context of the DUP. He's on the more traditional conservative end. Yes, and if he's going to take the DUP, it'll be in very particular directions. So the, there is now a case in the um, the High Court that has been brought by various unionist politicians against the uh, protocol, the uh, Brexit protocol and the Northern Ireland protocol. I listened to some of the opening remarks made about that protocol and the legal representative of the... Um, of the unionist side, compared the protocol to Vichy France, Michael. Oh, okay. It's not turned the temperature up. Yeah. So, substantial hardening, shall we say, of attitude there. Well, rhetoric anyway. The sort of thing that would be good to have someone like Arlene Foster still there, who, even if you didn't agree with her or like her, had a fairly solid track record of trying to work with people. Yeah, there were some terrible embarrassments like the cash for ash thing. That was just mm. hilariously inept at the very best. She sometimes she she lacked felicity sometimes in her expression, particularly her expression of disagreement. Um, her comments on say things touching say Irish language or those cultural issues. She 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 tended to be fairly tone deaf about. On the whole. <laughs> Um, a very uh, a journalist from the north uh, that we like was tweeting today in this context basically saying much what you're saying Gary that he said all those people who are delighted to see Arlene Foster go stop being nice about her now it's sickening and I think that maybe there is a certain element of buyer's remorse going on yeah I think there was a little bit of Arlene Foster is you know the raw extreme spirit of the DUP given form yeah as opposed to what the raw extreme spirit of the DUP taken form looks like. Although, to be fair, raw and extreme are not spirit forces. These are not words that I would normally associate with Edmund Poots. No, they're not. He's uh, all of the charisma of a damp newspaper. Yeah, it's not much, is it? 
and also Poots. It's just not a great surname. It's man can do nothing about it, and you can be called whatever you like. And I'm sure there are people who might think my surname was comical as well, but it just the whole package. But yes, he comes from a particular. He has a particular worldview. It's interesting. I've heard him described as a as a hardliner for his views on the alignment of of Northern Ireland with the rest of the UK. But it's an interesting one up the north because the Republican position is for the north to come back into the south, for it to be unified as one country. So why is it hardline to have the opposite view? Surely if one is hardline, they're both hardline. Which is not to say one is right or wrong. It's just, it's an odd thing to kind of position. If if one position is we stay in the country, and if one is, no, we leave and join another country, they both seem very similar. The problem with the North is a problem that has existed in lots of other places. Just the language doesn't quite express it. Is you have you you call one group a unionist, the other group are called Republicans or nationalists, but they're actually both just sets of nationalists, just nationalists who look to different nations. And when you have two sets of competing nationalists with different national different conceptions of their national identity, well, you're going to have a problem. We have if you are more sympathetic to one side or one side is more successful in how it manages its story or its narrative, then they get to be the, the, the more reasonable side and the other side get to be the hardliners or the extremists. I do enjoy that we've, we've, that, that we've, re- we've replaced Arlene Foster with a, what, 50... He's under 60 anyway, so 55. He's in that region. A 55-year-old farmer and young earth creationist. But isn't, isn't that the real thing? The thing that, that cannot really be forgiven about him is it's not so much anything else but it's the fact that he is this is the thing that fascinates people this is the thing that agitates and enrages some people that he is indeed a young earth creationist now how that works with other stuff i don't know can you kind of corral that belief off from the rest of uh, your what your life's activity does it really make any difference in normal politics how old you believe the world the universe is no, but it's it's a marker of social status and class. And it's seen as being you know, a position only held by morons and fanatics. But it's actually, it's interesting enough, it's, so Poots is also, I'm pretty sure he, he doesn't believe in evolution. Um, but when we, some of the times when we do training work with uh, students, there's work we do trying to show them that most of what people say they, they know, they actually just believe. They don't have any of the information required to back it up. Now, you can take some sort of, you know, Cartesian view of extreme scepticism and say you actually don't know anything, but working from what most people will accept. And we'll use evolution and we'll use the age of the earth and everyone will say they believe it because obviously everyone you're dealing with is educated and has the proper views. And then you ask them something like, so when you say you believe in uh, evolution, do you believe in Darwinian or Lamarckian or Neo-Darwinian or what exactly do you believe? And you just get this sort of, oh, bollocks. I didn't <laughs> think there would be follow-on questions. As on, most Everyone you know, of a reasonable sort believes in these things, but they're like any socially uh, imposed thing. Most people have no ability to prove them or even really understand them. They've just, they're the right things to believe and so you believe them and People who seem educated and reasonable believe them. So I, I, I never take any great offence when I hear people talk and say they don't believe in evolution or they don't believe in really anything because 
most of the time I just assume that's the same thing in a different direction. So you're saying that for most people, the belief in Darwinian evolution is basically an article of faith, religious belief, anyway. I think in most people, nearly everything is an article of faith. Nearly everything they believe that they know. If you really try and pin it down, they don't. They they have faith in it. They they were told it by someone they trust at some point, and they've maybe seen some work on it that all fits together. But this is the other thing. If you are looking to prove something like this, even in a scientific field, you have to have some level of trust in the research of others. Because you're not going to replicate it. You're not going to replicate all of it. You have to assume there's a level of good faith and ability to analyse it. And any of that could be false. So it's very difficult to actually know anything for certain. Anything complex is, is nearly impossible. Yeah, I, I think that's a, you're, you're heading towards a, a slightly more radical scepticism that, that, I, that I would be willing to buy into. I think that there are... Does it make any difference? I, I mean, I, I, I get, I've got to the point now with the North, and these things happen, and Ireland is gone, and he's come in. Does it make any difference? I don't, it's difficult to tell, because Northern Ireland is an incredibly artificial state. Having said that, there are significant, as I said, there are significant cultural differences and political differences. There are many similarities as well, but there are enough differences that I'm hesitant to actually talk about it in any great detail. It's difficult to tell what actually makes impact on Northern Ireland because it it is so constructed. It's kind of democratic, but it's kind of not. And it's propped up nearly entirely by state subsidies. And it's just a very odd system. And it looks it, it looks like a very unstable system. It looks like it'll eventually fall one way or the other. But and I, I don't know how deep I want to get into this because... Well, it's it's a deep hole and it's late. But if you remember, Gary, long, long time ago, when the Brexit negotiations were going on at the time of Theresa May, and the problem with the North was a, a recurring issue in the discussions. And we were talking about this quite a bit. And we had both come to the conclusion that everybody kept talking about the Good Friday Agreement. But the Good Friday Agreement actually, de facto, if, if not de jure, in the <coughs> after Brexit was was gone. It was dead. It was it was a deceased parrot. It had gone to the choir invisible, and that we're now in this position where everybody has decided that we have to consider that actually the Good Friday Agreement still exists. Brexit exists. There is a border between the two states. We are a member of the EU. The United Kingdom is not. The six counties are in the United Kingdom. Is it possible, Gary, that what we're actually engaged in here is an attempt to, to create a square circle? And that at some point what they're actually going to have to do is just come to an agreement which pretends they have done that. But in fact, there will be deep anomalies within it, but we just won't talk about those. We'll just go on and deal with the reality. I can't remember exactly what stage he turned up, but Bertie Hearn turned up at some point and was talking about how we should handle the North. And yeah. his response was, we should ignore it. Yes. And made the very solid point that, yeah, this is a bit of a squaring the circle. And if we try and pin down absolutely everything here, it'll collapse because it doesn't work. So if we get close and then we just ignore some stuff and we just, you know, don't look at it, this can work perfectly. And I think at the time he was fairly widely mocked for it. And I think we said, I think, you know, this was a while ago. I think we took to the position that he was fundamentally right. Yeah, it, it, we did. It, it, because 
the problem but the problem here is we there, when you get close to a solution any kind of solution which seems to get somewhere between reconciling the two fundamentally contradictory positions as i see it and i could very well be wrong there's always somebody who is some smart ass who puts his head up and says, ah but you can't do that because that will mean this and that will mean that and then you have that and that's unacceptable for either this side or for that side or for both sides or it doesn't work and really what we need is for everybody just to sit down and say nothing and just a, a collective pretense a form of the emperor's new clothes if you like but for a positive purpose you just accept that okay technically these two things don't actually work together they don't gel but we're going to behave as if they do and that'll be grand the question is if we can get the problem and not just the north Ireland. this is also voices in the republic and voices in westminster there always seems to be somebody willing to pop their head up and then uh, shall we say blow the gaff i don't i don't see that i don't see that edwin's advent is going to make a whole lot of difference to anything at the end of all of this the, the north requires subsidy and it will get those subsidies principally from the united kingdom it may get there may be some money coming from south of the border we don't know there may be some money indirectly becoming still from the eu but at the end of all of that it will they there will be a desire to assert authority and to be the strong man and to make the statement and to look like you are in charge in some sense but it'll be the you know the guy who plays the piper calls the tunes and they're often cliche and they know they can't the state as it exists in the north can't persist without money from outside and the people giving them those the, giving that money ultimately are going to be the ones who can to the extent they're willing or desirous to strong arm the question is the ultimate question is is not a nice question is what is the risk if the political institutions fall back into stalemate if we go back into a in a situation where the assembly has effectively been mothballed and it's back into direct rule for Westminster to what extent does that represent uh, a threat to the return of violence to the north I'm absolutely not in a position to know anything about that I talk to people in the north I talk to members of the clergy I talk to politicians all of them will say to me privately that they don't believe that that not that the north is in that place anymore that there may be small groups of individuals small splinters who are willing to persist in some kind of a a, a, a violent strategy but that they're not people who are, whose intent on using violence is contingent on any kind of political arrangement in the north really whatever happens they're going to be there anyway so in a sense these discussions are not don't have any effect on whether or not these people become violent or succeed in being violent but that that kind of level of structured violence that we saw through the south the 70s and the 80s and the 90s in the north most people in the north don't seem to think that that's a realistic threat now i don't suppose people will say that in public very much and you can understand why.
But if that is the belief, well, then that's going to have a significant influence on how people manage this problem and how seriously they take, shall we say, the, the machinations of unionist politics. Anyway, I'm sure good fun will be had, particularly given Poot's habit of just saying things. Oh, yeah. It'd be worth a headline or two. Oh, yeah. Jim, yeah. In a sort of, can you believe this imbecile said this thing? Look at his beliefs and mock them. Yeah. Which is, you know, a core part of a healthy debate. Oh, absolutely. That's how we do this. That's how we do politics. So, Michael, moving on from the DUP to Irish politics, did you see the Mail on Sunday poll? Which one? So, there's an Ireland Thinks poll out today from the Mail on Sunday. Go on. So, we've Sinn Féin at 30%, up 3%, Fine Gael at 25%, minus 1%, Fianna Fáil at 15%, minus 1%, Social Democrats, 7% plus 1%. Uh, Labour is 4% minus 1%. Into on 4%, no change. Solidarity, people for profit, 3%, no change. Green Party, 3%, no change. Independence and others, at 9% minus 1%. Mm-hmm. So, pretty much trends are continuing, as they have been for a while. The only interesting thing here is that, for a while there, Fine Gael seemed to be pretty immune to any downward movement based on the government's performance. Yes. And it may be that the, uh, the Fianna Fáil is now, or the government is now, contagious. <laughs> the yeah. interesting thing, though, is that when they actually polled, because they also polled people on a, a set number of issues, and are you confident in the go- current government's ability to tackle the pandemic is at 54%, but that's plus 19% on the last time it was polled. And no is down 20%. And then another question was, how would you rate the government handling of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout? Good is 30%, up 12. Average is 28%, minus 2. Very good is 21%, up 17. Yeah. Per and very per together are only 21%. And that that is a... I mean, that's 21%. That's 27% below where it was last time. I think we're seeing here the the vaccine supply is starting to speed up substantially and that's going to carry a lot of this away because once people are vaccinated, once things speed up, things that were problems are just not going to be a problem anymore and they may actually get a bounce. But if you're seeing that movement on the COVID issues and you're still either staying static or falling while Sinn Féin goes up, that's not great. That indicates that there are other issues. Oh, yeah, I suppose we're starting to see other issues coming back into politics. I mean, it is everything has been the pandemic up till now. Can you offhand, is is this a monthly poll? So I suppose really what we're seeing here is that the, the sample in the last, shall we say, we're talking six weeks ago, whenever this was taken, you've gone from a situation where a lot of people hadn't been vaccinated or and or didn't know anybody who had been vaccinated. To a situation where a lot of people have had their first have had their first dose or are booked in for their first dose or know somebody is, there's a very palpable sense across the country now, and that's for the last number of weeks that it's happening, that it actually is going on, that it it has been such a guttery, staggered experience all through February, March, April, uh, that it's that really it from I suppose. Second, third week in April on, it, start, it started to pick up and it's continued to pick up and to increase. And once people became confident that that was the way it was going to go, and as a consequence, they saw, for example, the relaxations happening there, as we saw was a couple of days ago, the 10th of May, and then 
others being promised we're now only a few weeks away from uh, hospitality opening outdoor dining coming back in hotels opening up again suddenly what seemed like a very distant light is starting to become more real and people that sense that the thing may actually be managed man, not just manageable but being actually managed is becoming much more real so they're getting but uh, as consequence other stuff housing we talked about this in the last one housing has become a big issue again i mean it hasn't gone away but it's 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 much more in the in in the in the eye line yeah but we're talking endlessly about housing but I'm never sure how much of a political impact housing actually has. No, I don't think it does, ultimately, when you come to polling day, when people actually go in and do the voting. But I think in a, in, I think in, in a, a particular moment, during an, in the middle of, an, of a cycle, the perception that there's a crisis and the government isn't doing anything about it, and more to the point, doesn't seem to have a plan to do anything about it, will affect the perception the government ha- the pe- people have about the government. Whether or not those people would actually go on and vote on housing is a different issue. I would actually, one point that may uh, that may be in play here is that, you know, in a democracy, all votes are equal, but not all voters are equal. And what I mean by that is, yes, when they go into the polling booth and they vote, that's, yeah, everyone is the same. But if you look at one person, let's say a Fianna Fáil voter, and, you know, he'll always vote for Fianna Fáil, but that's about it. Like, he might give a couple of quid, but he's not really involved with the party. He doesn't really do a lot of ground. And then you look at a different Fianna Fáil voter who's heavily involved in activism and is willing to go out and canvas and is willing to do all of these things and yeah. might give money, but also kind of inputs into the party what he thinks should happen. That voter is far more valuable to Fianna Fáil because they, they do more for Fianna Fáil. And subsequently, in most parties, people like that have far more influence if they're willing to put in the time. Now, you won't get everything, but you can move the party in ways that the wider membership might not care about if there's a small cohort in it that cares and is also active and is a benefit to the party. And you see it in, it's, it's, it's a simple thing of organisational structure and organisational psychology. You see it in nearly every organisation. Sure, yeah. A small group of people who are committed are far more likely to achieve something than a large group of people who have no, who are kind of amorphous and don't have any particular plan. It's one of the general reasons that um, organisations that are designed to be without hierarchy tend to actually just have informal hierarchies and power structures. And they oftentimes can be much worse because because as they're not visible and they're not uh, strictly determined, they can be very sort of resilient to change once they're established. It's one of the reasons why small groups of ideologically highly driven people can become quite influential, even if at, at, a, at, a, at a particular moment they may not actually be powerful. Because being driven, they will have a plan and they will want to execute the plan and they will identify particular targets that identify places they want to be, whether it's in print media, whether it's in the national broadcast or whether it's in local government or whether or, or NGOs. And they will go after they will actively go after those positions and actively help people following them to come into those positions. And they so they'll acquire influence because they are they have a plan. Most people don't have a plan and are not working towards something and therefore far less effective. We've heard over the years from talking to people about various political projects or the need to donate to certain charitable enterprises or things like uh, your media organizations so we say where you go to people and go well there needs to be a long-term consistent and structured plan here because the opposition has them 
And if you don't, and you're just doing stuff piecemeal and trying to basically do it on the cheap, yeah, it's very difficult to do it. And it's not something I found great success in convincing Irish people of. There's a general assumption of like, but sure, who would be interested in doing that? And you sort of look around and go, turns out rather a substantial amount of people are interested in doing it on the other side because it works. It takes longer and you... It's a real pain in the ass, to be honest, because you need to put a lot of work in. But you can get uh, you can get surprisingly large things done in Ireland because the government and civil service is largely intellectually bankrupt. If you turn up and you seem competent and respectable, you'd be surprised what they'll agree with, without really thinking if it's a terrible idea. Even if you don't even seem particularly competent or respect or reputable, if you seem confident, that's often enough. If you come up, you, you, you arrive and you say five things as facts with great deal of confidence. Studies have shown X, Y, and Z. People go, oh, right, really? Oh, gosh, oh, I didn't know that. And off they go. And nobody, well, I wouldn't say nobody, but it would surprise and depress you, dear listener, how often, you know, seasoned politicians never actually say, could I see that study, please? Or could I have a look at that graph? Because very often they, they'll show you just... The bit of the graph they want you to see, they won't show you the two years before it or the three years after it, but that bit. And very often people don't do it. So if you have, if you're committed and you have confidence, you can make, you can, you can get, you can make waves. So why, why I bring that up actually is if Sinn Féin are seen as immensely good in certain areas and they can pull in activists from those areas who are more engaged than the average voter, they can then use that to build on other issues because you have people who are willing to do things for you. And the Mail on Sunday actually did do, um, they did a poll of which of the three largest parties is best placed to tackle the housing crisis. Sinn Féin, 41%. Fine Gael, 22 Fine Fáil, 20 Unsure, 17 That is a massive cohort of mostly younger voters. If Sinn Féin can get those in, even if it's a small amount of voters, the momentum from getting them in, if you can direct it to other things, can be of immense value to you at local level and just getting the general Sinn Féin message out. So there could be, a, even if a lot of these people don't vote because they're young and actually the voting rate isn't that high. It, it, it also it also has the advantage of if you get people engaged on a particular issue like that and they're really... And they, they really care about that and they really think you're the person to solve it. You may get people on board who would not otherwise become involved with you. Hmm. They may not be that interested or that attracted by other parts of your policy agenda. But because this is the thing which they are most interested in, this is the thing which they regard as number one of their hierarchy of importance. They're, they're, they're willing just to say, okay, well, the rest of the stuff is that, it's, that's okay. I, I don't like it, but this is the thing. They're going to do it, so I'm going to go with them. So you can, actually, you, can, you can attract people that you wouldn't otherwise perhaps have been in a position to attract. And that's a big thing for Sinn Féin, because I suppose you may say things have changed after the last general election, but historically one of the problems they had was they were fishing from a reasonably narrow pool of voters, if they can if they can if they can work on a perceived competence on an issue say like housing that gives them an expand a possibility to expand outwards into areas where they would otherwise have previously been weak i have been talking to a fair amount of people involved in finnafall and finnegale the last while and the level of dislike of Sinn fein at the membership level is very much there particularly in finnegale virulent hatred of them 
But talking to people who had been involved and were voters for those parties, and in some cases had been members of the parliamentary or other parts of the political party itself, and we're now saying things like, well, you know, they wouldn't give Sinn Féin a first preference, but maybe a transfer. That would not have happened two or three years ago. It would have been ridiculous if you had suggested that they might even consider a thing like that to them. They would have been very clear that that was not the sort of talk that they would accept in their own house. I was talking to a couple of uh, people from prominent Fianna Fáil families. These very much, in, shall we say, the the comfortable wing of the party, long established, deep connections, and they were talking about their own their, their own their own position, but also the position of members of the family and their friends. And they were saying they were shocked talking to say Auntie X or Cousin Y, who said, you know, maybe it's time to give them the try. I mean, they can't be any worse. Until not that long ago, the position was. The election of Sinn Féin government would be the apocalypse. That would be the end of days. The country would be a charred husk within three or four years of, of Sinn Féin coming to government. That is gen- only a few years. Whatever has happened in the last few last period, whether it's something Sinn Féin has done or whether it's just the perception of the failure of the of, of, of the other parties, people are now who never would have dreamt of saying it. And they would happily say, listen, I can't believe I'm saying this to you. But, you know... Got to vote for someone, and maybe it's the time to give them a try. I mean, if if they're that bad, so we can get rid of them the next time out. Really astounding people. So, I know anecdotes, anecdotes, and anecdotes, and all that, but still, there are straws in the wind. I think it's also borne out by the polls. We've we're seeing this movement in the polls, and it's been a pretty consistent trend I have noticed amongst people I've talked to in those political spaces. As I said, outside of generally the membership itself, and even within the membership, there's, yeah. there's been some quite unusual uh, voices. But a couple of them did comment, now these weren't members, these were just general political people, that we were told for years that Sinn Féin would be end of the country. But the last few governments have adopted many of the policies that historically we would have said Sinn Féin would have brought in to ruin the country. Yes. And when we talk about things like you know the destigmatization of Sinn Féin, I think there is a point there in that many of their policies, which would have historically just been seen as totally unacceptable, are now the policies of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. And also, the, the, like, the culture, the perception of these parties and the perception of their political culture. Uh, it, we, we mentioned in the last cast, we were talking about uh, um, Mr. Gagan, who's running for Fine Gael in, in Dublin Bay South. And one of the things that was used... In, there's a bit of a, 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 a an underground campaign against him by disgruntled local blue shirts of who knows what stripe. But one of the things they used to attack him was that he was conservative. Now that's really interesting. That in Finnegan, okay, you could say that it's historically one of the most liberal constituencies in the country, but still, that with that Finnegan's perception of itself is such that to attack somebody, you call them a conservative. Now, not that no, Finnegan was the centre right party of the country. It was the, the Irish Tory party, to some extent. It was. I don't suppose was it ever like Thatcherite? Maybe it was a Ted Heath style party. Maybe it was a, a Israeli one union, one nation style Tory party. But he was a centre right party. He has to come out and say, "No, no, I am a liberal and I am a progressive." 
a liberal progressive politician. That's how they see themselves now. Well, once you've conceded that, well, Sinn Féin's starting to look an awful lot less unusual kind of an animal. The only thing that seems to be left to it that is, I suppose, odd or difficult for some of those people is its, its attachment on the national issue. But, you know, how many of the voters really care about that? I mean, is that going to be the number one? For, for some Sinn Féin voters, certainly, it's going to be a very important part of the reason they're voting Sinn Féin. But for other voters coming in, I don't think it's something that's going to put them off. They know oh, Sinn Féin, yeah, they're, they're green, they're Republicans. But they don't really care about it. It's, not, it's certainly not something that's going to stop them voting for them. Well, Gary, you could you could you could argue. I mean, as as people in outside Sinn Féin would say, that Sinn Féin is not yet a normal political party. That the processes by which the leadership of the of the party is decided are not the same or transparent as they would be in other political parties. That there are groups outside of the official structures of the party that seem to have influence both on the leadership of the party and the direction the party goes. Yeah, the problem, I think the problem there is that even if that is all true, that's not what anyone cares about. It's what those groups are. Because when you look at Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and their own internal structures and how people in particular positions are chosen, there's quite a lot you can get away with in some of those cases. Well, and, yeah, and to, be, to be clear, whether or not that accusation about Sinn Féin is true, one thing I've noticed the last while is that every so often, both either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, either nationally or locally, somebody will do something or say something, at which they feel, aha, the cat is out of the bag, and this is where we can tie you back to the IRA, that you're, you're, you're commemorating somebody who was in prison for murder, uh, whatever it is. And there's a, they seem to still have this belief that if they can su sufficiently remind the voting public that Sinn Féin were the political wing of the Prussian IRA, then the voting public will go, oh my gosh, I'd forgotten that. Oh, I, I can't vote for them. I think they're at nothing on that. There may be people who will be put off by that, but I think at this stage, people are voting for Sinn Féin or contemplating voting for Sinn Féin. That's priced in. The, the the history and the historical connections are priced in. That's discounted. That's not working anymore as as a as a as a turnoff. There are certain people who will never vote for Sinn Fein because of that. Desi Ellis has been a Sinn Fein TD since two thousand and eleven. If Desi Ellis can get elected, that's fine. The point at which you can say association with the IRA. Yeah. Is, uh, is enough to kill Sinn Féin, just on a strategic level, is done. Des, Desi Ellis, for those who don't know, he's up in Dublin Northwest. So Ellis is a former PIRA prisoner. There were some bomb-making equipment, and I would just advise people to go look into that if you're interested in the exact extent of those links, rather than me saying anything explicit about them. Whatever about that, there, there was a perception. But the fact is, this belief, and I agree with you, but my point is simply, there does seem, this belief seems to be persisting in quarters of Finnefort and Finnegan, that if they can tag them with this, and I think they're, at, they're effectively at nothing. I don't think that, 
those people are not going to ever vote for Sinn Féin. Are not are, are never. They're they're just out. Of, they're 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 out. They're they're not in in they're not in the in the game. But the people who are giving them thirty percent in the polls and up, it's not that they have forgotten or they don't know. That's just history. Good Friday Agreement is nineteen ninety seven. So that's twenty four years ago. So put it this way: you'd have to be thirty to have any kind of memory at all of what the North was like before Good Friday, any kind of a memory at all, and probably older to have any sense of it. So for certainly for younger voters, this is just an academic discussion, and for a lot of other voters, just accept. Listen, it's time if if we're going to let them come in and do politics, well, then let let them come in and do politics. Let's not stop faffing around. They have been normalised. We have, we said we want something to be normalised. They have normalised. So let's get on with it. Just as a, a, a final point on the poll, Michael, before we close up, I, I saved the best for last. I thought you would like the last thing they polled on. They got the approval rating of various politicians out of 10. Would you like to guess which politician has the highest uh, approval rating of the ones they polled for? Oh God! Is, is this uh, is this going to depress and annoy me? Absolutely, Simon Harris. Absolutely. Interestingly enough, though, that he got the highest approval rating out of any Irish politician they asked about, and his approval rating out of ten is four point six. <laughs> That's the highest. That's the highest. Oh right. Okay. The second highest is Mary Lou Macdonald at four point three. Leo Varadkar is also a 4.3. Michal Martin is at 3.2, as is Stephen Donnelly. And um, the Green Party leader is at, uh, Eamon Ryan, is at 2.6. Whoa. Good news for, good news for Eamon. Maybe so. Like People talk a lot about the Green Party polling, but the thing about the Green Party is they're a very particular and, and peculiar party in many ways in relation to their, their vote. Because the Green Party is immensely transfer friendly. Yes. Just incredibly friendly. Because they're like, they're non-threatening and they're sort of, everyone is like, oh, the environment is good. So, you know, you transfer to the Green Party and that's how they get elected. And then they'll come in and like ban cars or something. (laughs) And then everyone goes, oh, I didn't know that was a policy. You're like, yes, yes, they have many policies like that. I didn't know that the tiger would eat my face. Yeah, so, uh... Leo's uh, Leo's pulse thing seems to be having absolutely no impact on him personally. No, I, I, I never thought it would. I, I'm told that he himself, personally at that level, was very annoyed and upset and worried about it. But politically, I, I, I never thought that it was going to. It never. It was not the kind. It wasn't. There was no sex to it. I don't mean literal sex. I mean, there was no sexes. It was. It was procedural, and it was complex, and it wasn't really clear if he ever had actually done anything which was illegal and. And if he had, then every other politician in Ireland that had ever had a ministry, a junior ministry, or a position, would had done the same thing. So, I, it's, you'd have to do something far more egregious, I think, for the Irish voter to start caring about stuff like that. When when Billy Timmins was running for renewer, he met people on the campaign trail who didn't even know he'd left Fine Gael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd left Finnegan over the abortion issue with a very high profile. And and then he set up his own party and Lucinda Crichton was there and massive amount of national media attention. 
And voters just didn't know. They had no idea. No. Because the average voter... The average voter has other better things to do than spend time in politics. And that is perfectly reasonable and sensible because it's, you know, the key to a good, happy life. The problem is then, you know, a disinterest in politics really just means that you're going to be ruled by your lessers. Whereas an interest in politics, Michael, means you get to be ruled by your lessers, but be aware of it and build it into a pit of blinding rage, giving yourself a stroke at the prime age of 40. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not much of a choice. Yeah, it's like the old saying that, you know, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, while those who know history are doomed to watch them repeat it. <laughs> I, I, I long, long ever ago, when people used to talk, and I'm a big believer in teaching history in schools, because I just, for lots of reasons, but I long ago gave up on the notion that we could ever learn from history. The capacity of man to learn from its mistakes is much the same as our, any, our own capacity to, to, to learn from our own personal errors and to change. I think our ability to change after the age of six is pretty small. Right, we will be back on Wednesday where hopefully the uh, little, shall we say, fracas between Israel and Gaza will have calmed down to the extent we can talk about it. Yes, or, hmm. or it will have developed into full-scale war and we'll have to talk about it. But one way or the other, we'll probably talk about it. But until then, mind yourselves. All the best.